Please pray with me. Father above, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear your word. Lord, let us hear what your son declared to us. And Lord, let us hear what he has done for us. Amen. This is what happens when you forget to check the paper tray in the printer before you print your sermon. You end up with a blue sermon. Let's hope it preaches just like the normal ones, right? We're going to be spending our time today in Mark 7, looking at this dispute that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the scribes over tradition versus the law of God and what true purity is. But in order to step into Mark 7, I want to give you a little bit of background. And our reading from Deuteronomy is as good a place to start as any for this background. In Deuteronomy, Moses is actually speaking to the people on the banks of the Jordan before they go in to take possession of the land. And as they're about to go in, he warns them. He warns them to keep God's commandments. You see in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you. And do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Keeping the commandments of the Lord is intertwined with taking possession of the land and being able to keep it. Verse 5 says something similar. It's not that he's saying you earn possession of the land by keeping the commandments. But instead, the two are intertwined. If you reject God's commandments, eventually you will find yourself rejecting his promise too. Holding on to the land meant holding on to the commandments. In verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, he said to them, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? In other words, it's not just that taking possession of the land was intertwined with keeping commandments. Being near to God, his responsiveness in prayer, that was also intertwined with keeping the commandments. Again, his point was not that you earn God's presence or earn his answers to prayer through keeping the commandments. But if you reject his commandments, you will find yourself rejecting his presence as well. If you reject his commandments, you will find yourself rejecting his answers to prayer. This is the warning that Moses gives to the people. Keep the commandments of God. Keep them that you may maintain the land. Keep them that you may maintain the presence of God. Keep them that you may maintain the nearness of God in your prayer life. This is the warning. Psalm 15, which we prayed this morning, says something similar. It opens with the question, who may come into the tent of God? Who may dwell on his holy hill? In other words, who is allowed to be in God's presence, the tent, the tabernacle, the place where he dwells, the holy hill, Zion, the place where the temple is? The psalmist is asking the question, who can be there? And the rest of the psalm is an answer to that question. It's the person with a pure heart. It's the person who has not lifted up his hands to falsehood. It's the person who has not slandered his neighbor, who has not deceived people with their money, 
who has not taken out bribes. This is the sort of person who can be in the presence of God, be on his holy hill. Again, the psalmist is not claiming that we earn God's presence or the right to be in his tabernacle by keeping the commandments, by being pure. Instead, the psalmist is simply acknowledging that you cannot do both at once. If you reject the way of God, you are rejecting the presence of God. You will find yourself out of the tabernacle, off of the holy hill. The tragedy of the story of the Old Testament is that the Jews did not hear those warnings. They did not keep the commandments of God. They did not maintain purity before God. And y'all know the story. The result of that is that they were removed from the land. The temple was destroyed. These promised presences of God, his answers to their prayers, his presence in the temple, the land itself as an inheritance, these were removed from them because they would not keep the commandments and because they would not follow God. They were sent into exile. But we know that this isn't the end of the story because God wasn't done with them. He's more merciful than we deserve. He brings them back. Even in exile, his presence followed after them. Ezekiel sees a vision of the throne of God on wheels with the people in exile. God went into exile with them and brings them back in his mercy even though they were failed. They had failed. And through that, the people by and large learn this incredible lesson. It's interesting that after the exile, we never see idolatry on the national scale again in Israel. They learned something deep. One of the things that comes out of the exile is an insistence on keeping the commandments of God, a rigor over keeping the commandments of God. There was a lesson that was learned there, and they valued God's commands after the exile in a way that they had never valued them before. In fact, the teachers of Israel valued the commandments so highly that they began to build networks of laws around the commands, what the rabbis called a fence around the law. And the idea was that if they build this network of commands around the law, people can't get even close to breaking the law. And so they start building networks of laws around the law of keeping the Sabbath, networks of laws around the dietary laws, networks of laws to protect the people from breaking the law. This is how valuable the commandments of God become to them in that period. This conflict that the Pharisees have with Jesus is over one of those networks of laws, traditions to protect people from breaking the law. You see, originally, in the law of God, the priest had to wash before entering into the sacrifices. That's all the law stipulated. But it's easy to make certain the priest obeys that law if the priest has to wash before every meal, not just the sacrificial meals. And it's doubly easy to make certain that the priest keeps that law if we just say that everybody has to wash before every meal. The commandment of God was that the priest wash before the sacrifices. But the networks of laws, the traditions built around it are everyone wash before everything. The three places where the Jews sort of took these commands most seriously and began to build networks of laws were the laws about the Sabbath. They were the laws about diet, food, cleanliness, and they were the laws about circumcision. It's interesting to hear that because then when you see Jesus' conflicts with the Pharisees, many of them begin to make sense because many of his conflicts are over the Sabbath or over the way his disciples are eating or who he's eating with. A lot of the conflicts in the early church are about the issue of circumcision. 
the Jews were especially rigorous in those areas in their attempt to maintain the law of God. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, challenge Jesus when they see his disciples eating with unwashed hands. They say, what kind of teacher lets this happen? The slippery slope. Can you imagine what's next if they stop washing their hands? They wanted this tradition to protect the law because if they protected the law, remember, God's presence would be with them. The land would be theirs. In fact, it's safe to say that the general belief of the teachers of Israel at this time was that if people were sufficiently rigorous in the commandments, God would return to this land. The Romans would be driven out. The kingdom would be reestablished. This is what's at stake if people break the commandments. All of this is riding on the shoulders of the Pharisees when they say, don't you care that your disciples don't wash their hands? The kingdom is at stake in their minds. But Jesus hears their rebuke, and he criticizes them. He criticizes them, and he calls them hypocrites. Look at verses 6 through 8. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then the kicker. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He's saying to them, you're hypocrites because you've actually gotten to the place where you value your tradition that you've built to protect the law. You value that tradition more than the law itself. He says, you hypocrites, this tradition of washing hands, there's nothing wrong with that except for the fact that this tradition isn't God's law and you've placed it over God's law. Now, I imagine if we heard their response, Mark doesn't record it. If we heard their response, they probably would have been muttering and saying, not true. The whole reason this tradition exists is because we value the law of God. Not true, that's not fair. But Jesus actually steps in deeper, and he explains to them how their traditions have been elevated over the law of God. Look at verses 9 through 13. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Now the tradition that he refers here is a tradition, again, built to protect the commandment. The commandment says, fulfill your vows. That if you take an oath before God, you must fulfill it. This is the commandment. But in order to protect people from taking frivolous oaths, The Pharisees and the teachers, the scribes, went so far as to say, if you uttered the word Corban, it's a gift to God, then that is an oath that's binding. And in a pinch, when someone needs your property, all you have to do is say Corban. Now the vow must be fulfilled, and that person who needed your property cannot benefit from it. And so if your parents are destitute, and they come to you because you're doing well, and they say, can you help us? Imagine that, parents going to your children and saying, we need your help. And the selfish son or daughter, unwilling to help, 
only has to mutter the word Corbin. And the Pharisees, in their rigor for protecting the law by building traditions, say, this command, keeping your oath, supersedes this command, honoring your parents. And Jesus' point is that Corbin and that whole concept is well beyond the concept of oath that God intended. Well beyond it. You've pitted one command, keeping your oath against another through this tradition. You're nullifying God's clear word where he says, honor your parents. Take care of your parents. You're breaking the law of God in an attempt to establish your tradition. It's important for us to recognize that Jesus is not actually rejecting the concept of tradition. In fact, it's actually impossible to live without tradition. Can you imagine a family with zero traditions, where every Sunday was different than the one previous? Every Christmas was new? Oh, wait a minute, Christmas is a tradition, where every year was a new set of holidays made up from scratch. It's chaos. Can you imagine a nation with no traditions? No holidays, no laws. It's chaos and revolution in every generation if there is no tradition. Can you imagine a church with no tradition? Worshiping in a brand new way every single Sunday. Wait, Sunday's a tradition. Worshiping in a brand new way, whatever day of the week we randomly decided. It's chaos. You can't live without tradition. Jesus is actually not rejecting the concept of tradition. He's just simply saying that you have placed the content of your tradition over the law of God. In fact, Paul commends the Corinthians. This is in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. He commends them. He says, I commend you for holding fast to the traditions that I delivered to you. Tradition is not the evil. It's impossible to live without it. His point is that the content of your tradition, which may be good in and of itself, has become more important to you than the law of God. His point is that your traditions are training you to pit two laws of God against one another. That idea of pitting two laws of God against one another, whenever we find ourselves doing it, we need to back up. It's what the Pharisees were doing with this vow about oaths and this vow about honoring your parents. Unless you think that we would never do that, it seems unthinkable. It actually happens left and right in the church. When people say things like love means that God's sexual ethics don't apply, that real love means we relax the standards. It's a way of pitting two of God's commandments against one another. When people say that truth means harshly correcting people rather than bearing their burdens, it's pitting two of God's commandments against each other. My point is that what they were doing is something that's fairly easy to slip into. The idea that justice means no empathy for the sinner. It's pitting two of God's characteristics or traditions, commands against one another. They were doing something that we can be guilty of. We could actually stop here, and we could spend the rest of the time evaluating our own traditions and saying, are there places where we've elevated our church tradition over the law of God? Are there places where we've elevated our family traditions over the law of God? Are there places where we've elevated our political traditions over the law of God? We could stop here and dwell on that. But I think that's probably a sermon for another day. I want to push on because Jesus does. He takes this dispute over tradition to teach on what true purity is. And that's where I want to go. 
He tells a short parable after this. This is verses 14 and 15, perhaps the shortest parable that he ever tells. He called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. He says dirty hands and dirty food don't make a person impure. It's actually the stuff that comes out of us that defiles us, not the food that we put in. The disciples are confused. They don't get this parable. After all, dirty food does defile you. Filthy diets and filthy hands do defile you. But Jesus is talking about something deeper than the stomach or the liver or the kidneys. He's talking about their hearts. Listen to verses 17 through 23. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's the filth, in other words, that comes from our hearts, not the food that we put into our mouths that defiles us. Jesus isn't condemning eating healthy. He's not even condemning hand-washing here. His point is simply that being perfect in your bodily disciplines will not fix your heart. Now, I doubt that anyone here thinks that they can make their hearts pure by washing their hands. I don't think anybody's harboring that misconception. In fact, I think we all know that external disciplines won't fix the real issues of our heart. The deep real issues. The guilt that we bear. The shame that rests on our shoulders. The fear that we have. The impurity that we feel. The sense that we are unloved. The deep lonelinesses of the heart. I think we all know that external bodily disciplines won't fix those things. We know in our heads that eating and exercising isn't enough to fix the shame that we feel. We know in our heads that being in perfect shape, being attractive, won't deal with the loneliness that is deep in our hearts. We know that having the right amount of money, the getting the right job, we know that won't fix our fear or our shame. We know that being good at the job, that getting praise from peers or bosses won't fix the issue of, am I truly loved? We know these things in our head, but we still need to hear it. We need to hear Jesus here, because how oftentimes do we place bigger loads than those things can carry on them? We place the loads of the broken places of our heart on exercise we place the load of the broken places of our heart on our work. 
we place the load of the broken places deep in our heart on these external bodily things, and those things cannot bear that load. In other words, we need to hear Jesus' words here. We also need to hear Jesus' words here because there's times that we even elevate those things into the realm of God's law. Not explicitly. I don't think anybody here is going around actually believing that cleanliness is next to godliness. By the way, whoever coined that wasn't listening to Jesus here. Cleanliness is not next to godliness. There is a vast gulf between the two because cleanliness cannot fix the heart. We don't do this explicitly. I don't think most people are explicitly saying, if I am good enough in my disciplines, God will love me. We do it implicitly, though, because we believe that if I did these things right, I would be a good person. A good person. It's only the law of God that describes what a good person is, the law of God filtered through the life of Jesus Christ. Discipline and diet and exercise and being successful in your career do not make a good person. But we implicitly believe it. In other words, we elevate bodily disciplines to the realm of the law of God. We need to hear Jesus speaking. Unclean hands don't make an impure heart. It's what comes from within that defiles, not from without. We need to hear Jesus' parable. Bodily disciplines won't fix our heart. But Jesus' point actually goes deeper than what we think of as bodily disciplines, the things I've been listing like diet and exercise, even our work. Jesus' point goes deeper than that. Because remember that hand-washing for the Jews wasn't about hygiene. It was a religious practice. It was about being holy, being set apart as God's people. Hand-washing was about being perfect obeyers of the word of God. And Jesus said, even that cannot fix your heart. Even having perfect religious habits won't fix the brokenness that's deep within. It's like he would be saying to us, church, if you did the liturgy perfectly, that won't fix the issue of your heart. It's like he might be saying to each of you, if you get your devotional life in perfect order, that won't fix your heart. Hear how deep he cuts with his words. You can have all the right views, all the right opinions, and the perfect set of habits, and you will not fix the issue of your heart. He cuts deep. Doing those things won't fix us. And when we elevate them, religious habits, devotional patterns, when we elevate them up into the realm of God's word, we become hypocrites. As he says, honoring him with our lips, but not our hearts. The reason why hygiene and exercise, the reason why good family traditions by the right political opinions, the reason why even perfect devotional practices won't fix our hearts is because the problem comes from within. Our deep uncleanness is rooted in our very hearts themselves. Our uncleanness comes from within. Our hearts are the actual problem here, not our habits. The honest Christian likely doesn't need to be told this. We all know that selfishness springs from within. We all know that bitterness towards others who have wronged us 
just springs naturally from within. We all know that envy, that hatred, that these things just spring like a well up out of our hearts. We know that cruelty, that short tempers, that inappropriate sexual desires just spring up out of our heart. We know that the willingness to be less than fully honest, to exaggerate, to deceive people, just flows out of our hearts. The impurity comes from within. Our willingness to gossip, to slander others, to cut them down when they're not around, it springs from within our covetousness, our pride. This is what Jesus is saying, that the problem starts in the depths of your heart. It actually starts in the depths of my heart. And no amount of external discipline is going to address that problem. Our hearts are the problem. They produce these things, and no matter how frequently we try to clean ourselves up on the outside to mask it, to be good, to be perfect, to look okay, even when we're working hard to be a good Christian, it just pops out, right? Bitterness towards somebody who's wronged us, anger over something we thought was unjust, selfishness, it just pops out even when we're striving to be who we're supposed to be. How many times have you worked in the morning to have perfect devotional habits, and by the time afternoon, the stuff that flowed out was just filthy, and all the things that you've done out of that were wrong? This is the way we work. The ugliness comes from within, and our hygiene, our exercise, our diets, our appearance, our bank accounts, our work, even our devotional habits are not going to fix this problem. We can't take our hearts out and purify them. And that's the real issue. We're stuck. I'm sure I'm not alone in being someone who says, is this the way it always will be? Lord, when will you just root it out? Purify it from within. Would you do this for me? I'm sure I'm not alone in saying, Lord, can you cleanse me from the depths all the way outwards? I'm sure I'm not alone. By the way, Jesus wasn't the first Jewish prophet to actually talk about this. Most of the others had said things like this along the way. Think of Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus isn't the first Jewish prophet to speak these words, that the problem lies in your heart. The problem lies in my heart. He's not the first one to say these words. But what is so beautiful is that he's the first one who can do something about these words. He's the one who is more than a prophet. He didn't just point to the people and say, your hearts are the problem. It's the one who is the son of God and more than a prophet. He could do something about that filthy heart. And the beauty of the story, the story that we all know, is that he has. Through his sacrifice of himself, he actually offers us new hearts. Through his sacrifice of himself, he offers to remake us, starting from the inside, working outwards. Think of the beautiful words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, where he lists all these unrighteous, filthy people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, and such were some of you. That is indeed who you were. But he says, now you have been washed now you have been sanctified. Now you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Such 
were some of you. Or his words in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is a new in Christ, he is actually a new creation. He has done something about this. Through his offering up of himself, in the most glorious exchange, Jesus put his heart on the line so that you would receive a new heart. This is what he's done. And when a person says yes to Jesus, when a person steps forward in repentance, in faith, in baptism, he makes all things new, including their heart, right at that moment. It happens instantaneously. The person's heart is transformed. The old heart removed and the new one given, and the person is now, and such were you, but now you are washed. Now you are sanctified. Now you are justified. It happens at that moment. But some of you, like me, say, so then why do these things keep flowing out? If that's true, why do they keep coming? It happens all at once, but it also happens over the course of our lifetime because we spend so long living to that old heartbeat. We spend so long because we've been trained by that old heartbeat, living to the heartbeat of envy and selfishness and bitterness and lust. We live to the beat of the heart that's no longer properly ours, and we don't learn to live according to the beat of the new heart that's been given to us. This is why so many of the commands of the New Testament are given in the form of this is who you are, so live into it. The Bible's not dumb. It knows that we are torn between who we were and who we actually are, and it's very easy to live according to who we were because those habits are so deeply ingrained in us. That heartbeat makes sense to us. But the call is, this is who you are. So live according to this new heart. My point today, though, is not to go in deep into what it means to live according to the new heart. My point is simply reassurance. If you have come to Jesus Christ, you have been given a new heart. If you have come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance and baptism, you have actually been given a new heart. It's not a nice fiction. He has actually given you his very heart. He has actually offered life to you, new creation from the inside out. And that is really, really, really good news. Because most of us know that who we are in our old self is not at all who we want to be. And most of us know by years of trying that we cannot fix the old self. The only answer to this problem is Jesus offering you a new heart. This is my point today. Hear his word. You will not fix yourself through your disciplines. The only answer is will you receive the heart of Jesus Christ? Would you receive what he offers you? The beautiful thing is that in that new heart, in that new life, in that new creation, all of the external disciplines start to take their place. They're not insignificant. Your devotional life deeply matters, but it matters as it flows out of the new heart, not as an attempt to fix your heart yourself. You having the right habits, the way we worship, these things are beautiful and they matter, but they matter as they flow out of transformed hearts, not as an attempt to buy them. So the word to us this day is yes, the Lord knows that the impurity comes from within. But he has done something about that. And so receive the gift of Jesus Christ. Amen.